Section 29 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Heaven Already, Part 2. But the grand creation of joy is in the sacred heart of Jesus. Never has the blessedness of God been poured forth outside himself with such overwhelming splendour or with such unstinted munificence as over the created nature which he vouchsafed to assume to himself. At all moments, even during his dereliction upon the cross, and without impeding the vehemence of his affliction, Jesus was almost infinitely blessed. But if there was a time during his sojourn upon earth which was more eminently than another a period of joy, it was during what are called the joyful mysteries of his childhood. The usage of the faithful, which is mostly very accurate theology, assigns joy to the infancy as instinctively as it attributes sorrow to the passion, and glory to the forty days which followed the resurrection. It is true that the perfection of our Lord's science gave an extraordinary equability to his life by enabling him to live, as it were, different lives simultaneously. But, at least for our devotion, if we may not look for joy during his childhood, where may we look for it at all? Moreover, the object of our present inquiry is not so much, or at least not so directly, the whole joy of Jesus as the special joys of his infancy. But we must consider first of all the joy of the eternal word, the joy of that divine person who had assumed this human nature, and to whom this human heart belonged, which was a cabinet of gladness enough to beatify a thousand heavens. If we might say of one attribute rather than another that it resides in the life of God, we should say that it was in his beatitude. It is in his understanding, because his understanding is the utmost bliss. It is in his uncreated sanctity, for his holiness beatifies him. It is in his self-sufficiency, because his self-sufficiency is the realization of his bliss. He is a simple act, and we cannot otherwise qualify the act or characterize it than as bliss. The eternal life of glorified spirits and souls, which he pours into them, is an outpouring of his bliss. To see him as he is, is simply bliss. Beatitude is joy, divine joy. If it is allowable to use such words, joy is the vital thing in God. He must be God because he is eternally and self-sufficiently blessed. He must be eternally and self-sufficiently blessed precisely because he is God. God is not filled with life as he fills created vases with angelic, human or other life. He is himself life, absolute life, a living act. But in our necessarily indistinct conceptions of him, joy is to his being what life is to ours, only that his being and his joy are not only inseparable, but identical and therefore cannot stand in any relation to each other, as our being and our joy stand to one another. God is what he is, and we cannot change him by any view of ours. But much depends for ourselves upon the view we take of God. Some one view of him is always to each mind the truest view, and those whose ideas of God become simplified and luminous by looking at his majesty from the point of view of his beatitude will find that it will materially influence their choice of opinions in theology and bring forth many fruitful consequences in their practical devotion. To my eyes I confess that the longer I am allowed by his forbearance to look at God, 
the more one twofold view of him fills my soul with a love which is always maturing itself in fear, and an astonishment which never wears off and overawes while it attracts. Outside himself and towards us, his simplicity appears to resolve itself into a love which is intensified by his justice, while inside himself and independent of us, it seems to resolve itself into a beatitude whose placidity is deepened by a creative yearning to communicate his bliss. It is as if his love were dissatisfied with his inward contentment and broke forth and ran beyond him, while his beatitude brooded over the abysses of his own eternity and islanded his unapproachable purity from the contact of created things. Such is the semblance with which the mind disguises God, as if his life were thus mystically a taking in of breath and a breathing it forth like ours. He has much to pardon in our worthiest conceptions of his majesty, and to holy fear all that it requires will be condoned. It is only with feelings of speechless adoration that we can venture to look on the person of the unbegotten Father with his infinite fecundity. There is something awful in the joy which he has in himself. His complacency in his illimitable perfections has not the shape and fashion of any created thing, however magnificent or marvellous. He knows himself. He comprehends his own immensity. He fathoms the depths of his beauty. His life is beatitude. It cannot be otherwise than an infinity of glorious bliss. But his joy is not the effect of his exploring his own being by his self-knowledge. All things begin equally in him in whom is no beginning or shadow of beginning at all. His joy is his fecundity, and his fecundity his joy. His knowledge of himself, a knowledge which cannot but unspeakably beatify him, though not as cause, is the production of another co-equal person. His simple beholding of himself is not a process. It is substantial and vital, a living, consubstantial person. He gazes upon himself in gladness, and he beholds the word whom that self-knowledge has produced, and in the perfect similitude of the word he beholds himself. The word is the Father's joy in himself, because he is his knowledge of himself, and his knowledge is unbeginning, uncreated joy. The word himself, thus eternally produced, is an infinity of joy in himself also, co-equal in vastness, in magnificence, in eternity, with the joy of the Father. Thus the generation of the word is the illimitable joy of the divine understanding. The meeting, we are speaking human words which are necessarily false, of these two oceans of bliss, the Father and the Son, causes, as it were, a double infinity of joy, which is as unimaginable as it is indescribable. But so fruitful is this joy, so joyous the fruitfulness, that it is absolutely necessitated to produce a third infinity of joy, the person of the Holy Ghost. So universally is this divine person, who is produced by the love of the Father and the Son, as by one principle, so universally is he referred to joy, that the ancient fathers named him the Jubilee of the Father and the Son, an uncreated jubilee, the never-beginning and the always-beginning self-exaltation of the Godhead. As the sun is light, the spirit is fire. As the sun is wisdom, the spirit is love. While the Father is eminently self-sufficiency and power. Thus the necessary inward emanations of the Godhead seem to simplify themselves in joy the further they advance, 
and their term, who can never be overpassed, is named of the Christian Church, the everlasting, eternally proceeding jubilee. Thus the procession of the Holy Ghost is the illimitable joy of the divine will. Thus contemplating the joy of the Father and the joy of the Holy Ghost, we may now gaze upon the joy of the Word, which is, as it were, contained between those other two divine persons. We are looking on an ocean, as it were, from above, from a cloud in the air, an impossible station which we may imagine. It is an ocean which has no shores, and yet millions of beings lie external to it. It is as unfathomable as it is vast, yet it was all contained in the littleness of the babe of Bethlehem. Nevertheless, through the indistinctness of this mighty ocean, we seem as we gaze to distinguish eight oceans in the bosom of the one, as the one itself is but one of three. There is, first of all, the joy of the Son in having such a father. The delight which is his life is a perfect knowledge of the inexhaustible grandeurs of the Father. His Father's excellence is so infinite that it fills his own infinity. But that such an excellence should stand to him in the relation of Father is a joy so unspeakable, a contentment so peculiar, a glory so singular and so unshared, that we cannot compass it with the extremest subtlety of thought. Yet the second joy, that he himself is such a son, is a joy as vast and as unspeakable as the other. The perfection of his likeness to the Father stirs his joy like a tide, and stirs it even to its lowest depths. It is as great a bliss to him, and yet a distinct bliss, to be himself the Son, as it is to him to have the Father for his Father. His simple filiation, apart, if we can think of it apart, from the excellences which it combines, is in itself an abyss of uncreated exaltation. He broods over it with everlasting complacency. It is a filiation always actual, for he is being eternally begotten every moment, and therefore it is a beatitude always fresh and always new, like morning on the sea. The third ocean gleams dazzlingly under the mist which always lies unuplifted over the secret things of God. He and the Father are one, and from them, as from a single fountain, proceeds the co-equal spirit in a silent, motionless procession of uncreated splendor, an adorable, fiery jubilee, completing, binding, limiting the Godhead, and exhausting the mysterious necessities of the divine nature. It is God himself building himself up like a fortress of fire between himself and all possible things besides, the ever-burning eternal watchtower overlooking all creation's limits, a limit to creation as well as a limit to the Godhead, a limit to creation which can itself have no created limit, but to which the third person of the Holy Trinity is the limit in sight of which the farthest ascending creatures come, and yet come not up to it, like the far-seen palisades of mountains that bound some earthly view, the feet of which the misty outstretched plains do not appear to reach or touch. The joy of the Son is his fecundity, his bliss in producing with the Father a spirit so adorably co-equal with himself, and with them both, is his third joy, a glory which is a mere assemblage of definitions when we describe our faith, but which, like all definitions, is a glorious transfiguration of sanctity within our hearts. There is a power of holiness in true theology, which, 
they who slight it will one day uselessly regret. There is a fourth joy of the Son in the might and sweetness of that mutual love of the Father and Himself, which, mingling in one fountain, had the power from its commingling to produce the Holy Ghost. The method, if we may so speak, by which the Holy Ghost was produced, is to the Son a joy as infinite as the fact of His production. Under what similitude shall we speak of that mutual love of the Father and the Son, and of its unutterable operation? We might perchance find some figure in the beautiful magnificence of fire, only that its loveliness is too terrible, both to eye and ear, to let our frightened nature be at peace in the presence of its power. And its power becomes beautiful in proportion as it is beyond control. That love is two fountains, and yet they were never two. They unite, yet they never were disunited. They produce, yet they never were without him whom they produce. He is not a consequence of the love which produces him, but co-equal with it, co-eternal with it, consubstantial with it. There are mysteries which even heaven will not make plain. They will be among the most peculiar of the joys of heaven. Such perhaps will be the method by which the Holy Ghost proceeds from, yet is not generated by, the mutual love of the Father and the Son. The Word is the wisdom of the Godhead. The possession of secrets is one of wisdom's joys, a different joy from that of its communicating them. The incommunicable knowledge of the manner of the Holy Ghost's procession is perhaps one of the glad secrets of the Word. It is a divine jubilee to him that none can comprehend the outflow of his uncreated jubilee. His fifth joy lies before our imagination as something so surpassingly beautiful that we long to have words to express even what our poor, inadequate thoughts are able to think. It arises from another twofold love, like the twofold love of the Father and Himself, by which the Holy Spirit was produced. It is the love of the Holy Ghost and Himself, His blissful love of the Spirit, and the Spirit's blissful love of Him. In His love of the Holy Spirit there is that peculiar blessedness which forms an element in the joy of the Father's love of Him, as of the person He has produced, and which the Son could not have felt were He not with the Father, the producer of the Holy Ghost. His joy would have wanted this particular eminence if the Holy Spirit had proceeded from the Father alone. In the same manner also, that other element in the Father's joy which arises from the love of the person whom He has produced and is producing, enters into the Son's inheritance of joy as He receives the same kind of love from the Holy Ghost who is proceeding from Him, which he himself renders to the Father, by whom he is being begotten. Here is a joy, the very double of that joy which produced a third person in the Holy Trinity, yet there is no more production. The bliss falls back and scatters itself in showers of uncreated light over the three blessed persons. Who is able even to dream worthily of such things as these? A sixth ocean of joy now succeeds, though its succession is but an appearance and a show to the infirmity of our unsteady sight. It is the joy of the word in the co-equality of the three persons. The Godhead is now complete, as it always was. The procession of the Holy Ghost is the perfection of that ever-living life. It is a joy to the Son that he is co-equal with the Father, and an equal joy to him that the Holy Ghost is co-equal with himself. 
It is a further joy to him that this sovereign co-equality remains undisturbed by the seeming inferiority of generation and procession. It is a rapture even to the quietude of the divine nature that the limit placed to itself by the mutual love of the Father and the Son should be in the most absolute manner co-equal with the awful unbegotten fountain of Godhead, from whom the Son himself proceeded and proceeds. But there is a seventh joy which transcends even this joy. Co-equality does not adequately express the perfection of the blessedness of God. Though doubtless every distinction in the Holy Trinity is infinitely beatific, nevertheless the majesty of uncreated bliss reposes in its unity rather than in its distinctions. The unity of the Godhead would seem to be its crowning joy. The three persons are not only co-equal persons, but they are one God, and it is only in this unity that their mutual love is majestically consummated. God's delight in his own oneness is inexplicable, but we feel sure it is the mountain top of all that mountainous world of glories, sublimities, and joys, and by the miracle of his nature not to be depicted by art or fancy of man, while it is the top, and because it is the top of all that infinite mountain range, it is the outspread base and the magnific root as well. We might dare to think that, as by some special appropriation the sun is the wisdom of the Godhead, so there was to him, in the same sense that injures not the equal eminence of the other two, some special delight in the unity of the Godhead which his wisdom would so specially appreciate. Who would have believed that another, an eighth ocean, would have opened to our view? The joy of the sun, as it were, comes down from the lone heights of the divine unity, and broods with scintillations of quivering, peaceful splendour over the eminence of his own person. He joys in his own unity as son. He exalts that he is the only son of the Father, and that there can be no other, though to satisfy the Father and himself, he will, in special alliance with the Holy Ghost, multiply his own titles of filiation by becoming incarnate, to show how infinitely dear to him that mystery of filiation could be. He too had his unity and his joy of unity. He was the only son he rejoiced also that he was the eternal son, that the father had been forever a father, and only by him could be a father. He rejoiced that the father never had been without him. For the father's sake he rejoiced as well as for his own. He rejoiced that his own generation had never begun, and equally he rejoiced that it was always going on and would never end. For his father's sake he rejoiced in this also, as well as for his own. He rejoiced that he was the eternal son, because thus he entered into the breathing forth of the Holy Ghost. By his eternal generation it was, that he took, and forever takes, part in the eternal procession of the Spirit. In this also he rejoiced, as well for the Spirit's sake as for his own. He rejoiced that the Holy Ghost should have the jubilee of proceeding from a person like his, with a joy which equalled that other joy of being himself one of the persons from whom the Holy Ghost proceeded. In this too he rejoiced, as well for the Spirit's sake as for his own. It was by the eternity of his sonship that all this joy was gained. Furthermore, he rejoiced that he was the necessary son of the Father. He rejoiced that he was no free emanation of God, like the beautiful created worlds, but that the Father could not do without him, nor without him could the Holy Spirit be the jubilee he is. 
His sonship was the first sweet necessity of the Godhead, which yet could have no first because it could have no beginning. He rejoiced that the majestic freedom of the Godhead, to the full size of which freedom, its mighty gladness swells, should reside in its necessities, and that his sonship should be the necessity of the Father, who could not but beget him, and the necessity of the Holy Ghost, who could not but proceed from him together with the Father, and his own necessity, who could not but be everlastingly and jubilantly begotten. Thus his eighth joy was a triple joy, one joy made of three, a threefold unity of joy which simply concerned his own person as being the only, the eternal, and the necessary Son of God. These were his joys, ages back and from the beginning, but we need not speak of them in the past tense only, they are his life, not his history. These are his joys at this moment, of the dawning of a summer day, they will be his joys forever. How beautiful is thy life, eternal word! Such are the joys of the three divine persons, and in particular the eight beatitudes of the person of the Son. But, as all within God is joy, all his outpourings are joy also. If sorrow is the child of the fall, as was said before, joy was the intended state of the unfallen world. Because God is God, creation must needs swim in joy, as if joy were air and space to it. This was the primary intention. This is the inextinguishable brightness in the idea of creation. Even now how joyous it all is, with gladness almost divinely rebelling against its penal destiny of grief. Earth is like a minstrel beside herself, making songs of her sorrows, and setting even her lamentations to inspiring music. Sin brings the reverse of joy because it is the contradictory of God. It puts out the light of the world, so far as it can put it out, because it obscures or falsifies the intent of creative love. Redemption is to bring back joy and to recover creation's lost birthright for it. For what is the end of creation but to enter into the joy of its Lord? Redemption is thus a second outflow of joy, as creation was a first. Grace itself is a sovereign joy, even in what is painful and harsh to nature, as the blithe austerities of the saints assure us, and the raptures of martyrdom authentically testify. But the divine person who has redeemed us is the Word, that person whose own joys we have ventured to contemplate in such detail, that person who has sheathed his infinite grandeur in that littleness of that infantine frame at Bethlehem. Thus our joy stands in a peculiar relation to the joy of the eternal word. All the joys we have are in a very real sense from the eternal word, who has redeemed us by his incarnation, and did thereby even merit grace for the angels who needed not redeeming grace. From the joy, therefore, of the highest seraphim to the blithe play of the Christian child on the village green, all joy is from him. Nay, because of the word's peculiar connection with creation, we may reverentially say that the joys in the bright eyes and inarticulate thanksgivings of animals are from him. He is joy because he is light. This is very noticeable. He is the light of creatures because he is the brightness of the Father. And where there is light, there is joy. Light is the peculiar outpouring of the second person, outpoured over every man that comes into the world the outpouring of the person of the word. It seems to come from his personality and from what constitutes it, which lets in the light and so the joy of the Godhead upon us. 
His sacred humanity lies in the very focus and fountain of this light, or rather call it light joy, and catching and making visible the splendor, as bright objects catch and diffuse the light, it illuminates all the heaven both of angels and of men. Thus the joy of the word is eternal, illimitable, all-seeing, almighty, all-holy, and quite incredibly communicative. And if communicative in such an excessive degree to all creatures, what must it have been, what must it be, to his sacred humanity? Joy is an inevitableness of God, if we may so express ourselves, in every one of his operations. There is a joy to the rest of his admiring creation, even in the most appalling exhibitions of his justice, and while we are still in the light of earth and the faith of Christ, it seems as if he could not touch us, but joy comes. Even in chastisements, it is a deep joy, and the most availing consolation that the infliction is from him. Joy is, in some sense, our final idea of God, for it is the conception of him which we are to realize ourselves in heaven. End of section 29